0: Hey, you came back! I'm thrilled! Who'd have thunk forever LDS would become a haunt for over a thousand unique listeners in a little over a month? So, you still think I can come up with interesting or profound stuff to say in this, our 10th podcast, eh? That's right, we're at number 10. Stuff to say is never a challenge, it's which stuff? I mean, there's so many topics. This gospel, the restored gospel, it's a gold mine, the richest theology on planet Earth, and it's ever expanding. Um, to begin with, I must express thanks in particular to some of you who have posted very kind and inspiring comments on various podcasts. I will limit specific thanks to commenters on last week's podcast, but there were others. For example, last week, Neil Sylvester wrote... And I'm going to select the best stuff, Neil, because you wrote a lot. You said, I know exactly what Chris is talking about regarding those awakening moments where you suddenly realize the power of prayer and the reality of revelation after having gone through something of a spiritual slump. I've gone through that cycle way too many times, but I think that's okay because I've subsequently developed an awesome testimony of prayer and revelation, confirmed for me many, many times, and has become, as declared by one of Chris's LDS teachers in high school when Chris asked him about his testimony, it's a little more than belief. Then Tim Costello wrote, This was a great podcast this week. Well, thank you, Tim. I mean, it brought to mind many of the personal revelations I've had in my life. Some seemed small, while others hit like a lightning bolt. In both ways, I could feel the Lord guiding my life and know of a surety of His influence. Thank you, Chris, for every podcast. They make my week. Cool. You made my week, Tim, and the podcast makes my week. I hope to make people's weeks often, and I plan to bring up some of your posts on a lot of the different podcasts. So if you don't want your name mentioned, don't post. If you don't mind, post away or go anonymous. I need to hear this stuff because I'm never sure if whatever message I planned really got through. Oh, and uh I need to give A special shout out to Jim Shoneman, I hope I pronounced that right, who noticed on podcast eight, entitled A Galactic Conundrum, that we had an occasional static problem, which I certainly also noticed, too, and which was driving me crazy. With his vast background in broadcasting, he proposed a technical solution that I would have never gleaned or guessed, which I am going to implement for this episode. If it works, Jim, you saved me a ton of stress, time, and money. I was ready to buy all new equipment, which I can't afford, crossing my fingers and thanking you ahead of time for sharing your wisdom, because we're going to have some genuine fun today, if brain expansion is fun. But it starts with sort of a blunt proposition. I'm going to explore. Why it is that Latter-day Saints produce some of the greatest science fiction and fantasy writers in the world, and will continue to produce some of the most insightful and imaginative that the world has ever read or seen. Now, I've expressed that idea before, I think, in our very first podcast, and some might have thought, huh, that's quite a statement. Surely some might argue with that proposition and present their own lists that include primarily non-Latter-day Saints. And by sheer numbers, maybe you'll have a point, but by percentages? I think we're going to take the prize. In that original podcast, I named some of the great LDS sci-fi and fantasy authors, and I left off quite a few. And folks were not shy about telling me the ones I forgot to mention. But here's my point. We're just getting started. We have merely begun to tell stories that stretch the mind in ways that humankind never fathomed. So the question becomes, why? What is it about our theology that inspires a fantasy or science fiction-oriented imagination like no other system on earth? In that podcast, I also made the point that we are the only religion, particularly the only Christian religion, whose actual core revelations and doctrines teach, I mean literally present to the world unequivocally not as a theory or philosophy, but as hardcore theology—the idea that there is life on other planets, that God's creations throughout the universe are so vast as to be inconceivable. Unlike Vizini in The Princess Bride, I am using that word correctly. We are also the only religion that suggests man and God are the same species, that when we refer to him as our father the father of our spirits, we mean it literally. And that because he is our father, we have the definite opportunity to one day become like him with the potential to inherit eternal life, which by definition means to live the kind of existence that he leads, creating our own worlds, galaxies, and universes, depending upon how you define universe, because even modern cosmologists and astronomers are still trying to nail down a reliable definition for that term without much success. The questions just keep getting more complicated. George Q. Cannon, apostle and member of the first presidency under Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilfred Woodruff, and Lorenzo Snow taught Some believe our eternal destiny is to sit upon clouds, thrum harps, and sing forever. What an occupation! What a monotony! No matter how sweet this music might be, it would become very wearisome if extended long, but such is not our destiny. Our mission hereafter is to perpetuate and continue the work of our Father and our God, to perpetuate our species, and to create worlds from the elements by which we are surrounded. What's mind-boggling is that so much of this theology predates modern cosmology. In other words, Joseph Smith and other prophets of the 19th century were teaching significant and really profound principles that directly tied Christian theology to the cosmos before the scientific world even had a grasp on what the cosmos was. You see, most modern writers, particularly of science fiction and fantasy, pride themselves in not adopting any religious belief system. They feel such tenets would limit their imaginations, prevent them from exploring the most fantastic and illuminative concepts Consciously or unconsciously, restricted by the dogma of whatever belief system they have adopted. Thus, they prefer agnosticism or atheism, perceiving such mindsets as unencumbered, free to explore the full capabilities of their powers of intellectual speculation. They can even create characters whose religions uncannily resemble earthly religions, so as to make social commentary upon them, and generally lauding the superiority of remaining unattached and aloof from organized religion in their personal lives, and therefore open to whatever metaphysical or non-metaphysical philosophy they find most appealing. They often create complex systems of magic or supernatural power. Powers that adhere to very specific guidelines. And generally, those rules bear an unmistakable resemblance to whatever happens to be the popular worldly philosophies and attitudes of the day. Whatever happens to be in vogue amidst the cultures to whom they write. I'm sure those familiar with a host of science fiction writers will point out exceptions to this, saying, hey, so and so is a faithful Catholic, or so and so is a faithful Hindu, but by and large, those who follow science fiction and fantasy would confess that if a particular sci fi or fantasy writer is also a devout member of some religion, more often than not, that religion happens to be. Mormonism, or rather, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So, these novelists and storytellers are either no religion or they're LDS. Does that seem strange to anyone else? It shouldn't. I mean, it may seem odd to the world at large that so few Hindus or Muslims or even faithful believing Baptists produce great science fiction authors. So, why is it that faithful Latter-day Saints— whose entire lives revolve around faith in Jesus Christ and an adherence to a strict code of beliefs, practices, and commandments, somehow retain that same freedom of speculative consciousness, that same unencumbered opportunity to explore the highest potentials of imagination as someone who, for the most part, rejects religion entirely. To artists who think freedom of expression is only possible by rejecting strict religious beliefs, this often seems very odd to them. Uh, They kind of think, how can I possibly be competing for a Hugo or Nebula award? I mean, those are the highest literary honors bestowed upon sci-fi and fantasy writers. With a Mormon, someone who generally rejects the most fundamental doctrines of science, such as evolution, or the core principles of cosmology, which define every instance of creation since the Big Bang as a natural, unfolding mathematical process, devoid of any participation or interference by a supreme being." I mean, these numbskulls, these Mormons, think the earth is only a few thousand years old, for goodness sake. I mean, aren't these the same people who believe this guy named uh, Joseph Smith, this country bumpkin in upper New York in the first half of the 19th century, was given a golden Bible by an angel? An angel! And even worse than all that fantastical nonsense, aren't these the same church-going fanatics who worship that crucified God? Jesus Christ, whose outdated scriptures, particularly those found in the Bible, which is what they seem most familiar with, rejects the equality of women, the equality of race, even seems to outright promote slavery and the inferiority of the seed of Cain. That same sect that condemns homosexuality, in fact, condemns virtually all the natural impulses of human sexuality and freedom, basically telling all sinners they're going to hell, along with so many other tenets that the modern world now views as normal and even preferable. How can a novelist from such a narrow-minded background even write such exhilarating works of speculation and imagination? It just doesn't make sense to them. It defies all the tenets of what permits an artist to flourish artistically, of what allows a story to breathe and live and prosper. How is it that someone from such an outdated belief system manages to sell any books at all? Here's the secret. The religion at the core of that belief system actually allows for the possibility that the stories... Its adherents are telling the visions and settings and speculations and universes they create could be real, or at least have a basis in truth. The theology itself engenders the liberty to imagine things that without the theology are veritably unimaginable. Now, that's kind of a deep statement, and I just said it, so I need to explore it a little bit to make sure what I'm saying is understood. I mean, I write time-travel novels. Do I believe in time travel? Uh, I don't think so, but I do believe that the experience itself is possible. Yeah, I do. Uh, uh, How do I mean that? Well, here it is. If, for some bizarre reason, the Lord chose to use it as a teaching tool, and it all just turned out to be a vision or a dream, what's the difference? It would certainly feel real, and the intelligence gained would be the same. I mean, my first story in this series is actually based on a dream, so yeah, I believe it is possible. Nothing is impossible, everything is possible with God. All one needs to do is examine the scriptures and doctrines of Latter day Saints. To begin to understand the infinite possibilities of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the limitlessness of the entire religion. Brigham Young said in 1871 We differ very much with Christendom in regard to the sciences of religion. Our religion embraces all truth and every fact in existence, no matter whether in heaven, earth, or hell. A fact is a fact. All truth issues forth from the fountain of truth, and the sciences are facts as far as men have proved them. I might add, Brother Brigham, this is where we differ not only from all other denominations of Christendom, it's where we differ from all other world religions, because we don't fear anything science might reveal. There are no contradictions. Elder Heber C. Kimball, who spent 20 years in the first presidency of the church with Brigham Young, commanded the members of his congregations, improve your minds, enrich them with every kind of true knowledge on the earth. Learn the object of the creation of man, of the formation of the earth, of what it is composed and what it is for. Does that sound like a church that fears something science might reveal? On the contrary, we embrace these things. Our storytellers embrace them. Early 20th century apostle John A. Widso wrote, The Church, the custodian of the gospel on the earth, looks with full favor upon the attempts of men to search out the facts and laws of nature. It believes that men of science, seekers after truth, are often assisted by the Spirit of the Lord in such researches. It holds further that every scientific discovery may be incorporated into the gospel and that therefore there can be no conflict between true religion and correct science. The church teaches that the laws of nature are but the immutable laws of the creator of the universe. This is profound stuff, particularly for the times in which they were written. Let's uh, jump ahead just a little bit. This is from future church president and prophet Ezra Taft Benson, who as an apostle in 1966 wrote, religion and science have sometimes been in apparent conflict, yet the conflict should only be apparent, not real, for science should seek truth, and true religion is truth. There can never be conflict between revealed religion and scientific fact. That they have often occupied different fields of truth is a mere detail. The gospel accepts and embraces all truth. Science is slowly expanding her arms and reaching into the invisible domain in search of truth. The two are meeting daily, science as a child, revealed religion as the mother. Truth is truth. Whether labeled science or religion, there can be no conflict. Time is on the side of truth, for truth is eternal. That's beautiful. I never thought of Ezra Taft Benson as a poet, but I'd be thrilled to create such a beautiful analogy. Okay, I got one more from Apostle Parley P. Pratt in his book Key to the Science of Theology, published in 1855. He writes, The science of geography will be extended to millions of worlds, and will embrace a knowledge of their physical features and boundaries, their resources, mineral and vegetable, their rivers, lakes, seas, continents, and islands, the attainments of their inhabitants in the science of government, their progress in revealed religion, their employments, dress, manner, customs, etc., The science of astronomy will also be enlarged in proportion to the means of knowledge. System after system will rise to view in the vast field of research and exploration. Vast systems of suns and their attendant worlds, on which the eyes of Adam's race in their rudimental sphere have never gazed, will then be contemplated, circumscribed, weighed in the balance of human thought, their circumference and diameter be ascertained, their relative distances understood, their motions and revolutions, their times and laws, their hours, days, weeks, sabbaths, months, years, jubilees, centuries, millenniums, and eternities will all be told in the volumes of science. That's incredible. That's phenomenally prophetic. Discovery of the first exoplanet beyond our solar system was reported in 1988 by Canadian astronomers Bruce Campbell, G.A.H. Walker, and Stevenson Yang. Since 1988, thousands of exoplanets have been confirmed orbiting objects as diverse as pulsars and binary stars. We've even discovered rogue planets that aren't orbiting anything, just wandering through space. Yet even in the 1980s, 130 years after Parley P. Pratt envisioned these possibilities, many scientists were convinced that it was fundamentally impossible to develop techniques of confirming the attendant worlds of vast systems of suns, They were simply too doggone far away, and there was too much dust and debris and other obstacles blocking our view, even if we could develop the technology. Now, the exoplanets of distant stars are discovered virtually every day. And to think, in 1855, an LDS apostle forecast this reality, before telescopes had even discovered galaxies or contemplated the reality of black holes. Is it any wonder, with such an open-minded tradition regarding the advances of science and the ready conviction that such advances should be welcomed and studied and celebrated by the proponents of our theology, that members of our church would one day set loose the kind of imaginations that would one day dominate the genres of science fiction and fantasy? It's not just science fiction either. Apparently, it's also science fact. A 1974 article appearing in Science, published by the largest scientific society in America, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and along with the British journal Nature, certainly the most influential science magazine, reported that Mormonism had produced more scientists per capita than virtually all religious movements in 20th century America. I don't know where that fact stands today, but the fact remains that never was there a people hungrier for knowledge, for human comprehension of all varieties, than Latter-day Saints. If I may be permitted, let me quote from a 2015 article I found by Latter-day Saint scientist Samuel Smith entitled, Mormonism, a theology even a secularist could like. He writes, As a teenager growing up in the 1970s who was interested in all things science and technology related, while also a Mormon with strong Mormon roots, I had to come to grips with what appeared to be some basic incompatibilities between scientific truth and religious truth. What I discovered over time is that most of the incompatibility lay not with disagreements between fundamental tenets of Mormon theology and science— but lay with disagreements between the theologies of other Christian religions and science. Albeit there are elements of Mormonism that may be problematic for the scientist, these have to do more with culture, practice, and policy than with cosmology. Indeed, as I continued to pursue my education, eventually getting a Ph.D. in electrical engineering and continuing for many more years as a tenured professor at a university— I found that the theistic cosmology first espoused by Joseph Smith in the early 19th century is uncannily becoming more compatible, not less, with advances in scientific knowledge. Samuel Smith then goes on to quote a slew of modern doctrines and scriptures that promote the framework of scientific faith and the nature of God and man. However, he leaves out my favorite scripture, the one that to me ties it all together with an incredible promise. In D&C 101, verses 33 and 34, we read that when the Savior comes again, he shall reveal all things, things which have passed, and hidden things which no man knew, things of the earth by which it was made, and the purpose and the end thereof, things most precious, things that are above and things that are beneath, things that are in the earth and above the earth and in heaven. I'm just assuming that when that day arrives, it will tell us more than any episode of Through the Wormhole or The Science of Stupid or UFO Conspiracies, Now, I recognize that not all Latter-day Saints feel the same passion that I do, and that others do about these subjects, fearing that searching too deeply into such things might be construed as delving into the mysteries and, and end up shattering faith rather than building it. Have no fear. Here's my favorite quote from Brigham Young on this kind of resistance to learning. It's kind of a long quote, and I know this 19th century language can come off rather dry at times, but please, don't fall asleep. Focus, focus. I mean, we're exercising the brain here, and sometimes that can be no less exhausting than running a marathon. President Young uh, apparently stood up to speak right after the congregation had heard from future President John Taylor. Brother Brigham said, We talk to the Latter-day Saints a great deal, and we wish them to become a thinking people, a people that will reflect and begin to systematize their lives and know the object of their existence here. It was observed here by Brother Taylor this morning, when speaking of the arts and sciences, they are from eternity to eternity. They can neither be increased nor diminished. And the Lord has had to teach the people all that they know, no matter whether it be the wicked who acknowledge Him not, or the righteous. Both are alike in that respect. They receive their knowledge from the same source. The construction of the electric telegraph and the method of using it, enabling the people to send messages from one end of the earth to the other, is just as much a revelation from God as any ever given. The same is true with regard to making machinery, whether it be a steamboat, a carding machine, a sailing vessel, a rowing vessel, a plow, harrow, rake, sewing machine, threshing machine, or anything else. It makes no difference. These things have existed from all eternity and will continue to all eternity. And the Lord has revealed them to His children. In the infancy of creation, the human family commenced down at the bottom of the ladder and had to make their way upward. Government, to be stable and permanent, and have any show for success must be reduced to a science. It is the same with religion. But our traditions are such that it is one of the most difficult things in the world to make men believe that the revealed religion of heaven is a pure science, and all true science in the possession of men now is a part of the religion of heaven and has been revealed from that source." But it is hard to get people to believe that God is a scientific character, that He lives by science or strict law, that by this He is, and by law He was made what He is, and will remain to all eternity because of His faithful adherence to law. It is a most difficult thing to make the people believe that every art and science and all wisdom comes from him, and that he is their author. Our spirits are his, he begot them, we are his children. He set the machine in motion to produce our tabernacles, and when men discard the principles of the existence of a supreme being, and treat it with lightness, as Brother Taylor says, they are fools. It is strange that scientific men do not realize that, All they know is derived from him. To suppose or to foster the idea for one moment that they are the originators of the wisdom they possess is folly in the highest. Such men do not know themselves. As for ignoring the principle of the existence of a supreme being, I would as soon ignore the idea that this house came into existence without the agency of intelligent beings. Well, the Latter-day Saints are beginning to comprehend that true religion is a science. True religion is a science. To many, that's a unique perspective. They never thought of it that way before. And secularists? They don't get it. Enemies of the church don't get it. And even other people of faith generally don't get it. Perhaps they never will. They'll never understand how true religion—ah, and there's the key—how true religion frees up the imagination in ways inconceivable to those who have never been immersed inside it. Secularists and humanist storytellers don't see how their own liberal perceptions can actually limit their potential. They don't see the chains that bind their intellectual speculations. After all, they laud the, quote, freedom of writing about sin and degradation and violence and corruption without judgment, as if they are the ultimate custodians of neutral observation, the journalists of the human condition. They can't understand how Latter-day Saints storytellers could ever create characters with real, gut-wrenching internal conflict, three-dimensional personalities, and an even-handed, even compassionate perspective on human weakness. After all, these are the things that make for great storytelling. No religious person can write with this kind of honesty and depth, or so they think. And yet Latter-day Saint writers do write with this kind of honesty and depth, and more. And, mark my words, as time goes on, they will expand their influence in such fields, both in the fields of artistic expression and hard science, to the absolute befuddlement of the secular world. Oh, there will always be brilliant, marvelously constructed, and imaginative stories that celebrate hedonism and vice and sin of the foulest varieties, and these kinds of stories will always have their fans and followers. But the fact is that stories and other media that promote these kinds of vices are, for some inexplicable reason, ultimately rejected by something deep within the human soul. I'd like to call it the light of Christ, the Holy Ghost. I believe there's something about great feats of creative expression by valiant soldiers of God's true religion that will always have an unfair advantage over their competitors. This is my prophecy for the future. We'll see if I have any of the same gifts as someone like Parley P. Pratt. Uh, Time will tell, I guess. But remember this. The secret to tapping into that conduit of intelligence will always be faith, humility, and virtue. God cannot pour his purest wisdom into a broken vessel. And even a Latter-day Saint with the noblest objective of enlightening the world and striving to use his or her talents for ultimate good must, to obtain exaltation, abide by the same rules of repentance and striving to adhere to God's commandments in their personal lives. Or the light flicks off. Okay, well, that's probably enough brain expansion for today. Maybe it's too presumptive to call our podcasts on Forever LDS brain expanders anyway, but we're doing our best. I'm doing my best. And that will remain our objective Next week, I'd like to do another interview. We had a few technical challenges on the last interview, so we'll have to see if those challenges can now be conquered and overcome. So until then, my friends in Christ, stay close to the Lord. Seek in your own unique and vital way to build His kingdom in all that you do. How you live, how you talk, how you think, how you appear. May you feel His influence, receive His light, in every part of your lives. Have you spoken with God yet today? Well, that's how you feel His influence and receive His light. The conversation is never one-sided. You may sometimes think it is, but it's not. Of that I testify. I wish I could testify in the name of our Savior, but not really appropriate here. This is just a podcast, not a calling. And I feel obligated from time to time to remind my listeners of that. So, until next time, this is Chris Heimerdinger. This is Forever LDS. Signing off.